0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Informal MLB Pod. I'm your host, Sam Lewis. Joined once again with co-host Austin Coley. How you doing, Austin?
1: I'm doing good, Sam. I guess, wow, two podcasts in a row. It's like I'm back to being a regular host again.
0: It's just like old times, man. It's like riding a bike. You know, you go a few months without doing it, but you get right back on and you're just like you never stopped.
1: Well, you know what? I'll say this before we get rolling, talking some baseball. Even though mine- primary job is baseball you and aaron lewis know far more about what's going on in the sport than even i do so i may not be as much of a wealth of information as encyclopedia aaron lewis but i hope that maybe i can bring a different scope to some things we're talking about um either way i'm excited to be back on um and and talking with you
0: well, I mean, no one knows as much as Aaron Lewis, so don't compare yourself to that. Um, could, and Aaron, secondly, could Aaron
1: Lewis stump the Schwab with MLB?
0: I think that Aaron Lewis is the Schwab reincarnated, actually. I think he came back as a second life as Aaron Lewis.
1: <laughs> it could be. I mean, Aaron
0: Lewis it is, could is, you know, their lives may, the Schwab's not even dead. I don't know. He might,
1: he might be dead. I don't know.
0: He might be dead. I don't know. Does anyone know who the shop really is? I have no idea. Anyway, Aaron Lewis will be back next week. He was unable to record this week, but he'll be back next week. This week, Austin's filling in, doing an admirable job, I'm sure. There's going to be a heavy helping of NBA at the end of this pod as well. So um, any thoughts off the top or you just want to dive right into this?
1: No, I think it's good that next week Aaron Lewis will step in and have two weeks of baseball to cover. So it'll be real pleasant for everybody's eardrums, hearing him, whenever he decides to come back next week but in the meantime let's get going with it
0: let's do it man so first of all let's start off with some MLB news so on some of mine in your old old school pods back during football season you would ask me what is my one big takeaway from the week so um, I'm going to pose that question to you in a minute but I didn't tell you I was going to so I'll give you a minute to think about it and I'll give you my one big takeaway and that is Mike Stanton Giancarlo Stanton Versus Mike Fires last night. Did you see this?
1: I saw a clip of it. I haven't looked into it a whole time, but um, uh, you can explain, you know, more. But I guess Fires hit him in the head, right? That that's what made him go right. to the face guard in the first place. Um, so yeah,
0: that was the original, and that was like three and a half, four years ago at this point. Fires was the one that broke his jaw. You know, really scary scene. He was laying on the ground. You know, bloods all over home plate. He had to get stretchered off. And then Fires hit him again yesterday, and Stanton did not take kindly to it at all. I mean, you know he's he's got to be thinking about it going into that at bat. He knows that Fires is the one who hit him in the face, and he hit him up and in again. Stanton starts jawing at him. First of all, if I'm Mike Fires, if Giancarlo Stanton starts yelling at me, I think I'm just going to the locker room. Like I don't want any part of it. Just get me out of there. That guy could kill him, you know. And of course, his next at bat, Stanton hits a ball about 700 feet and gets even. And I, as far as I know today, there wasn't any more um, fisticuffs um, and there shouldn't be because Giancarlo Stanton would kill people. And I don't know. I just, I was really entertained by this, you know, the, the old school, nobody charged the mound. He got hit, you know, up around the head and his next bat, he hit a home run and that's where it should end. And I, I just thought that was interesting. I enjoyed watching it.
1: So there's a couple of things that come into play with this type of scenario in the game. So, nobody that I have ever talked to as a pitcher when they do go in and hit somebody for a purpose hits somebody in the head never especially I've never ever heard somebody that be somebody's intentions and Mike fires whenever he hits Stanton both of these times I don't think it was intentional I don't know the you know backstory if anything else happened earlier in the game but. I don't think it was intentional two things are really important to remember when you think about mike fires first his game is based on the spin rate of his fastball playing off of his or alongside with his 12-6 curveball so for him to be effective He's going to have to pitch at the top of the zone with his spin, the spin rate on his fastball, which is exceptional. That's why he's able to throw 90, 91, 92 miles an hour at the top of the zone and get a lot of swings and misses. And then, because he's throwing at the top of the zone, he plays off of that with his 12-6 curveball, and they really complement each other really well. That's why he's been able to have a successful Major League Baseball career. So when you're throwing that high in the zone consistently – just a, a small miss arm side can can accidentally go at someone's head um which is extremely unfortunate but when you're giving everything into a ball you, you can't be perfect and hit a spot every single time you know it's just sometimes one and you know 500 it, it happens um and so for stanton to be that frustrated i get it he you know he got hit in the head which is so scary um and I get him being frustrated I don't think it was an intentional thing but you know when when you're um you know Giancarlo Stanton I I get why he was upset and you know he got his revenge on him so I mean I think everything turned, turned out in the end um but uh but, yes, it's just, it's just one of those unfortunate things in baseball that, you know, you, you got to pitch to both sides of the plate. And, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, balls balls run in a little bit. But um, but then you, you can also, you know, hit a 700-foot home run off of somebody too. So, um, so, yeah, I don't think there should be any more. I get why he was upset, though.
0: Yeah, and right away, as soon as it happened, You know, Fires said, I didn't mean to hit you. And he just kept saying I didn't mean to hit you. I didn't mean to hit you. But from a hitter's perspective, I've obviously never hit at anywhere close to the level, you know, that these guys are playing at. But just in high school and college, when you get hit by a pitch, you're not thinking. You don't care whether they meant to do it or not. You know, you're in pain. It hurts. And you're mad. And that's the emotion that's controlling your actions. So I understand where Stan's coming from. And take it to a whole nother level when this is the guy who literally broke your jaw. You know, I don't know if it was the last time he faced him, but um, you know, he he broke his jaw, and that's definitely in the back of his mind when he gets into the box. So I get why he's upset, but I'm with you; it's not intentional, and hopefully nothing else comes out of it. But you touched on something I've been wanting to talk to you about on the pod. You talked about Mike Fires spin rate and how he uses that to his advantage as a pitcher. Last night I was watching the MLB draft. And of course, I'm going to talk about the Braves' pick, Carter Stewart, um, right-handed pitcher out of high school in Florida. He—I don't know if you saw this—but his number one, number one calling card, his best trait, the reason he got drafted in the top ten, is because of the spin rate on his curveball. He's got a you know above-average fastball, but not elite like some of these guys do. But his curveball spin rate is over 3,000 RPMs, up to 3,500 RPMs according to what they were saying on the draft last night is it would be the highest spin rate curveball in the major leagues right now which is insane to me but i also don't fully understand what that means you know i i get the the mechanics of it i know that it's i know you know technically what it means but what does it mean for a pitcher to have a spin rate that high especially on a breaking ball how does that work to your advantage
1: yeah so with spin rate, usually the lowest spin rate pitch you're going to have is your changeup because you're choking it, and the way it comes out of your hand, it usually falls anywhere from 1,300 to 1,700 rotations per minute coming towards the plate. A fastball is usually 20, 2,000 to 2,200 is the average. Fires, I don't know his numbers, but he's probably close to 2,500, which if you think about a ball coming to the plate, it's impossible for a ball to rise because of gravity. But hitters have seen so many pitches over the course of their career, from all the way from when they, you know, even when coaches were pitching to them all the way up to now, that they've taken an average of that and so their eyes – have an idea of how a ball is going to come from a pitcher's hand into the zone because they have such little time to recognize the pitch and what kind of pitch it is and where it's going to be, your eyes automatically judge where it thinks the ball will end up. So that's why somebody with a high spin rate to hitters almost looks like the ball's rising because they'll swing under where their eyes perceive the ball is going to be. Because because it's not
0: dropping right, as much as they think it's going to, of right? The
1: spin and. The way it's going to run through the air, because it's spinning faster, gravity will not affect it as quickly, and so that's why hitters will swing under those pitches and say, man, that ball jumped, it rose. Really, it's not. It's actually just staying flat, but hitters are used to perceiving balls as having an angle to them and ending up a little bit further down vertically from where they were released from the pitcher's hand, Um, and so... You know, on the other hand, if you have a low spin rate fastball, the ball is going to drop. It will because it's not spinning as fast. It will physically drop faster than a normal fastball. So that's why sinkers with lower spin rates are more effective and get a lot of movement. So with a curveball, if you think about a fastball, you throw it and it's going to backspin. With a curveball, it's the opposite. The way you spin it, it's going to spin from back to forward. So the faster that that ball is spinning forwards, the more it's going to drop, and the sharper it's going to drop. So if a curveball has a higher RPM than average, it's going to drop more than the hitter perceives a normal curveball would. So I actually, I think I saw a video from, it may have been Pitching Ninja, I don't know if you follow Pitching Ninja. If,
0: I do, and it, I do, and if you're out there listening to this and you don't follow Pitching Ninja, stop, pause the podcast, and go follow that account. It's fantastic. He is
1: incredible. Shout out to Pitching Ninja, but I don't know if it was him or somebody else posted a video of this guy throwing a throwing a breaking ball, and it does. I mean, the thing just nose dies when it gets towards the plate, and, and that's just spin rate. You you can teach velocity, you can teach location, but spin rate is just one of those things that that you cannot teach. So. That's just a natural gift he has with his curveball, um, and it's obviously a plus 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 pitch. So, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if that made any sense at all, but, um, but but that's kind of what I don't know everything about spin rate, but that's sort of what I've gathered so far.
0: No, that's def that makes total sense, and it <clears throat> excuse me, it gives a unique perspective because I can you know we can look at that on a, on a sheet and know intuitively that the higher spin rate is better. but getting it from a player's perspective of what that actually means in game is interesting. And I think it's that's one of, I guess the quote unquote advanced stats that I can put the most stock in is some of the stat cast stats, the actual physical data of how fast your ball is spinning, how fast guys are running, you know, the angles they're taking on fly balls in the outfield. I think it's given us an entirely new way to view the game. And I can understand it without having you know a PhD in statistics, which I appreciate. And I thought you did a great job explaining it. Good job, oh, man. Thanks. Congratulations. I mean, an-
1: analytics definitely is a lot more prevalent in the game now than it was, gosh, 10, 15, even five years ago. I mean, the data that you're able to pull on pitchers from some of these devices, like the TrackMan, um, like that StatCast, like a Soto machines that are able to take a pitcher's pitches and... Not only gauge, I'm gonna get sun really get really into I guess murky nerdy waters here, but so there's an there's a the spin rate, which is how many you know revolutions per minute the ball is going to spin, but if your ball isn't spinning on a straight axis, meaning straight back and forth, then if it's off that axis. At all, then they're seeing then then there is this thing called true spin. So true spin takes the ball, and if your ball is off the axis and spinning more of like a let's say a one o'clock to seven o'clock, then it right. will not stay. It will not look like it jumps as much if it's a true twelve six spin. Um, and so there's another like I said another stat called true spin, which more accurately gauges a pitcher's spin rate. So um if you're trying to gauge something off of spin rate spin rate is not the tell-all be-all true spins actually you the the tell-all be-all so um i don't know i'm getting a get a little you know out there on that but it it is just super interesting all the stuff now that they use to to really dive in and, and engage players more than just man the mitt's popping you know
0: it's incredible to think how much technology has improved, like you said, just in the last five or ten years, to think that you can actually measure the number of times a baseball is spinning between home plate and the mound is incredible to me. It's unbelievable. But I don't have a smooth transition, so I'm just going to jump into the next topic. We touched on the MLB draft for a minute, and I think the most interesting story from last night was Kyler Murray, Oklahoma starting quarterback, getting drafted inside the top ten. I was shocked. I was watching the draft last night. I was shocked when this pick came through. Murray um, has told everybody he's playing quarterback next year at Oklahoma. He's not going to, you know, jump directly into major or into professional baseball yet. The A's still made him the number nine overall pick. Uh, they were saying on the draft last night that he's going to play football this fall and then go into the minor leagues next year, which I didn't think you could do because if you're if, correct me if I'm wrong, from the time you're drafted into into the Major League Baseball draft, you only have a certain number of days to sign your contract. Is that correct? Like, there's a deadline to sign. Yeah, I believe it's like and,
1: 45 or 60 days, one, one of the two, or 90. or Right. Um, something yeah.
0: around around like August 1st. We'll call it August 1st. Right. Something along in there. So, he, in order to um, hold his draft position with the A's, he has to sign before that date. Well, if you sign your contract, that'll be before college football season starts. How will he be eligible to play at Oklahoma in the fall if he's already signed a professional contract to play baseball? This, am, am I missing some obscure eligibility rule within the NCAA? Because this doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Yes, you are. So I'm really glad you okay, brought this good. up. En-
0: because enlighten me. So
1: we actually have a guy on my team right now in Altoona who did the exact same thing. So this we have an outfitter who just got caught up to our team. His name's Tyler Gaffney. I don't know if you remember him at all. He played football at Stanford. He was a running back. Um
0: yeah, the name sounds familiar. So
1: he got drafted. He played baseball and football Mm -hmm. at Stanford. Um and he got drafted I'm hope I'm getting all this right. Um but but he got drafted (laughs) as a junior with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Came and played in short season and then at the end of short season or maybe you know towards the end he told the pirates hey i'm going to go back and play my senior football season at stanford so once you get drafted at professionally baseball that means you're not eligible to play college baseball anymore but you're okay. all you're eligible to go back and play however many years remaining of the eligibility you have you can play another sport so for instance i got drafted as a junior out of belmont so if I wanted to go back and play a year of college golf, I have one year of eligibility left. I just could not go play baseball. Um, so Tyler went back and played. He, he was just, I think, like I said, I, I'm not you know crystal clear on, on a lot of you know his story, but I think he was just a role player um, until he went back his senior year and and wasn't really. I don't think expected to to do a whole lot, but he was a Heisman candidate. Um, and he ended up getting drafted by the New England Patriots and, um, he, he got injured while he was in, while he was with the team, with the Patriots. He, he played NFL for gosh, probably three or four years has a couple Super Bowl rings, but, um, he was just constantly injured. So now he's back. He came to spring training and now he's back playing baseball again. So, um, To answer your question about Kyler Murray, he can go back and play football because he is not playing football professionally. He just cannot go back and play professional baseball. And um, I I wonder how this is such a unique situation. I wonder how it will affect his signing bonus. I, I don't know if because he's going to go back and play football and the injury risk of that, he will get less of a signing bonus, but he also has a lot more leverage saying, hey, you know i want this much money or i'm just going to go back and play football and wait and you know so it'll be interesting to see what he ends up signing for but if the a's drafted him number nine i am 99.9 percent sure they feel comfortable about his situation
0: without a doubt because going into the draft i knew that kyler murray was rated as a first round talent you know i I don't follow the MLB draft religiously because I think if you do that, you're probably a psychopath. I mean, I don't know how you would keep up. With, you know, there's forty rounds. There's a lot of lot of talent in that pool, but I, you know, I've read some mock drafts. I read some pre-draft articles, and I knew that he was um, a first-round talent. But everybody that I read said that he wasn't going to get picked because he was so adamant about going to school. So, like you said, I guess if the A's picked him in the top ten, they've got to know that he's willing to sign, and I mean, just from the outside looking in, it seems to me like that's going to be a way over slot sign um, to get a guy who's so – because correct me if I'm wrong, I believe he's got two full seasons left of eligibility to play football at Oklahoma, and he's not a guy who's a, an NFL prospect at quarterback. I think he's about you know 5'9 or 5'10. He is going to be a very good college quarterback from all indications, but he's not um, going to be able to play professionally in the NFL in all likelihood – But he's got two seasons left to play at Oklahoma if he wants to. So I'm guessing the A's are committed to go, you know, pretty significantly over slot for this guy. And I think that the A's have some extra picks in the competitive balance rounds because they always do. So they've got a little extra slot money to do that if they want to. Um, But, yeah, I would assume that they're going to have to to overpay him a little bit to get him to sign.
1: Yeah, I mean, the good thing about Kyler is that I mean, kids got two great options. I mean, how many people can say that, you know, they played big time college football or, you know, got drafted in the top 10 in the MLB draft? I mean, that's just crazy to think about um, and good for him for putting him in a position to be able to do both.
0: Right. I mean, he's a guy who has gotten some preseason Heisman love, you know, from some of the preseason college football magazines. And whenever he's done playing football, he's going to have a. Uh a nice, lucrative MLB career potentially before him. He's a fantastic athlete, which transitions us seamlessly into another fantastic athlete, which is Max Scherzer. We're recording this Tuesday night, late Tuesday night, and Max Scherzer pitched tonight against the Tampa Bay Rays, and he shoved once again because he always shoves. He's incredible. And he had an immaculate inning, which for those of you who are uninitiated that don't know, that's a nine-pitch, three-strikeout inning, the best possible inning a pitcher can have Um, he's unbelievable I mean every time I watch this guy pitch he does something that no one else in the league does right now I mean he's he goes deep into games he's striking everybody out he never gives up hits it seems like every other start he's taking a no-hitter into the sixth or the seventh and the Braves just played the Nationals this past weekend in a four-game series miraculously we didn't have to face Scherzer but he still came in and pinch hit in the fourteenth inning and got the game winning RBI, or game winning. He scored the game winning run. It's unbelievable. He's got to be the best pitcher in the league right now, especially with Kershaw being hurt. But I mean, he's he's unbelievable. Did you? I know you had a game tonight, but did you get to see any of the highlights from his start?
1: You know, if Scherzer's going to beat you, you'd rather it be with the arm than with the bat. Yeah, it was. And a, that's it was. All a, I'd have to say. A, with the, yeah, Saturday was a with rough the whole day. Thing. Saturday was Second a rough day. Thing, I, I think. We need to make an all-pitching podcast and call it the Immaculate Inning. That would (laughs) would be awesome. I would love that. Um, So, yeah, I I did not see any of Scherzer's start tonight, but I will speak to the Immaculate Inning and how hard that is. I mean, so these hitters, Major League hitters, I get that they're striking out at an all-time high, but... To throw nine pitches and strike out three players, I mean that's just—I wouldn't even say it's—it's it, it's luck with him. It's luck with some guys, but the amount of hard work and just tenacity that that dude comes to the field with every day. And, and when he told me to, told me he threw an immaculate inning, I was like, oh my gosh! But at the same time, like I am not surprised one bit. I mean, he's just putting himself he's 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 the best pitcher in the game right now he really is with kershaw out um i, I know some of those guys you know in the astros that are doing some um you know really special things over there but but scherzer is he's awesome
0: right now he really is I, I hate to say it because he pitches for the nationals and every time the braves play him you know i feel like we're gonna get no hit but he really is he's the most fun pitcher to watch in the league and I think he's the best. It's, you know, right now it's him and Kluber side-by-side side as the best two pitchers in the league uh, with Kershaw being down. And I'm going to give you the second Pitching Ninja shout-out of the podcast. Go go to his Twitter account. He tweeted the immaculate inning and, you know, it took like seven seconds to show the whole thing because he was just showing the strikeout pitches. And I think he showed every pitch. Actually, there was nine pitches. It took like six and a half seconds to show the whole inning. You're, think about, put your put yourself in the mind of the hitters for the Rays in that inning. The last guy who comes up to the plate, you know Scherzer struck out the first two guys of the inning on three pitches. He's got you down 0-2. You know he's going for the immaculate inning here. He's trying to strike you out to get the nine-pitch inning and to still just blow it right by a guy. And, and this guy had no chance. Was, you know, Like a 97 mile an hour fastball, top of the zone, he had no shot. It's unbelievable. It, it really is. He's at a different level than everybody else. And you know, we talked about I – mean, we both said that he's the best pitcher in the league simply, well, for one reason, because Kershaw's hurt. And that transitions us again. Man, I'm just getting really good at this, you know, podcast hosting thing, just smoothly transitioning into our next topic, which is Clayton Kershaw going back on the DL. And
1: Hold on one second. Yeah. I'm, I'm, watching, I'm watching this Max Scherzer inning right now on, on the before-mention – Pitching ninja. And I mean, he starts the first guy out with two 84 mile an hour sliders, 84, 86, and then a filthy changeup. That's one thing people don't know about Scherzer is how good his changeup is. It's
0: probably his best pitch, right? I mean, the fastball is fantastic, but that changeup's unhittable.
1: Changeup is really, really good, especially when you have to account for another spin rate guy with his fastball. And then he just proceeds to go 95 95 on the black to the next guy and then a change up out of the zone and then just blow three straight fastballs past the other guy he had no chance um,
0: the the pitching ninja every now and then he'll tweet about um you know how strikeouts are up in the league and every once in a while you'll be watching a game and one of these old announcers will talk about how you know strikeouts are ruining the game and these hitters don't care about putting the ball in play anymore just go watch a few of these videos on the Pitching Ninja's Twitter account and ask yourself why hitters aren't putting the ball in play. I mean, could you put the ball in play against this? It's unbelievable.
1: I mean, he had six swings in this inning. Five of them were misses. It's
0: unreal. It's unreal. It really is. And it kind of, on one hand, it makes me a little, a, sa- a little sad for Kershaw. We're not getting to see Kershaw this year. We did a preseason pod, you and I, about our most favorite players to watch, and Kershaw is at the top of your list. He was right up up near the top of my list. And this is like the third year in a row he struggled with injuries. He finally came back this past week. Um, His velo was way down. He didn't look right. He still went five innings, only gave up one earned run, I think, which just goes to show you how good Clayton Kershaw is. It's even when he's injured, he's still putting up quality starts. but. Um, after the start, he's right back on the DL. More back problems, man. This it doesn't look good.
1: So I saw a tweet from somebody. I wish I could give him credit, but in 2017, Clayton Kershaw did not throw one four seam fastball below 90. Point like three miles an hour, uh, maybe 90.0, and in his start the other day, I don't. He didn't throw one forcing fastball above 90.0 miles an hour. So obviously something is going on with him. He had the bicep tendonitis and came back from that. And like you said, he's had some back problems in the past. Um, it's just tough because he's such an intense competitor. You know he wants to be out. If something's holding him out, it's, it's serious, and it's to the point where he just cannot pitch. Um, so it, it's always tough to see. Like you said, Kershaw is not only at the top of my list, but way at the top of my list. he's my favorite guy to watch and um and and so it does stink. Um, but hopefully he can get healthy and, and come back because the Dodgers are only one and a half games out right now, so um, you know, as they start to get healthier, hopefully he can, hopefully he can be with them for a push. It, it'd be better for him to get healthy and come back right than try to push through it and, and be out from, you know, July through the rest of the year.
0: Yeah, and that's the good news is I think, you know, for all the struggles they've had for the first third of the season, I think the Dodgers are still um, head and shoulders above every other team in that division. You know, I know the, Do- the Diamondbacks started out really hot. The Rockies are, are a solid team. Um, the Giants are getting Bumgarner back. They actually got Bumgarner back tonight. He pitched pretty well. And they're they're not going to go away. But I think the Dodgers are going to win this division. Um, they've got the depth. You know, They're getting everybody else back right now. Kershaw, I think. They got Turner back. Um, and a lot of their guys just aren't playing well. Once they come around, I think the Dodgers win this division. So I'm with you. Let Kershaw sit out till he's 100% healthy. Because when he's 100% healthy, he is, without a doubt, the best pitcher in the league. And They've got to get him healthy going into the playoffs if they want to have a chance to win the World Series. And, you know, when you run a payroll like the Dodgers do, that's really, that's got to be the ultimate goal. And I've been picking him to win the World Series every year for the last four or five years now. And I'm going to keep doing it until Kershaw is no longer Kershaw. And I really hope that we're not there. Um, I hope he gets healthy and I hope he gets back to the Kershaw of old. Um, but I've got, yeah. I've got one more baseball topic that I want to touch on with you before we dive into the little NBA and then get out of here. It is getting late. It's past my bedtime, so we need to wrap this bad boy up. Um, the last baseball topic that we have to touch on is Jake Arrieta versus the Phillies. So coming into the season, we know that the Phillies hired Gabe Kapler as their manager. Um, got, he's got the reputation as, you know, a, a super new wave analytics, you know, cutting edge of the new school manager profile he's talking about how he's going to try a bunch of different things you know a bunch of new tactics that we haven't seen before um first series in atlanta against the braves he does some really weird bullpen management stuff he pulls aaron nola when he's rolling in the sixth inning with like 68 pitches the bullpen blows the game um he's gotten a little bit better with that but the bullpen is still blown a few games for him i think arietta his last two starts, has he's left with the lead and the bullpen's blown it they shift more than any team in the league which i mean everybody's shifting now but there's an article on the athletic about how the phillies statistically are the worst shifting defense um they have the least success when shifting and after his start i believe it was on saturday when they got beat um they the phillies only scored one run all weekend and the one run they scored was on a jake area rbi so after he got beat Scored the uh, you know had the only RBI for his entire team. He kind of let the let the team have it. Talked about how they're you know shifting in the wrong situations. How you know he used some language I'm not going to use on this family friendly podcast, but basically called out his organization, which um, doesn't surprise me. Coming from Jake Arrieta necessarily, but you usually don't see that. You know, Um, baseball players are usually a little more reserved in the public um, in the public sphere. So I just want to get your take on it. First of all, what's your take on this specific situation? And second of all, how do you as a pitcher um, view shifting? Because, you know, with a lot of the next level analytics that we talked about earlier, in most, you know, a lot of situations it's beneficial over the long term. But, you know, it's got to be frustrating when you get a ground ball to shortstop that turns into a base hit because your shortstop's playing second base.
1: Yeah, so talking to Arietta specifically, I don't know Jake Arietta. I don't know what his intention was for coming out into the press and saying this it sounds like he's trying to send a message to his team through the media it may just be him being frustrated but the words he used it seemed like he was you know sending a message to the team um you know in regards to just shifting in general gosh I mean I'd be lying if I told you if we had extreme pull shift on and a guy squeaked the ball you know where the shortstop was um, that I, w- I, w- I would be, you know, oh, man, it's okay, we played the odds. But, no, I mean, I'm upset about it. But at the same time, you are playing statistically what a player will do most. So if you've got a guy that just constantly pulls, 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 especially on the ground, um, and you're going to move three infielders over to the right side and move the third baseman over to the shortstop position, um, I mean, I get it because as a pitcher, you pitch. You have to pitch in that way too, you know. Like if, um, you know, if if you if you want a guy to hit the ball on the right side, you sequence it so he tries to hit the ball on the right side. Um, and to a guy that specifically does it, uh, I mean, people we don't shift because of I'm going to pitch a guy a certain way. We shift because his tendencies promote moving guys over there. So it's always going to be, you know, did it work? Did it not work? It's a catch 22, right? I mean, if guys hit the balls all at the the shifts, then, you know, you look like a genius. But if guys start shooting balls the other way, um, then, you know, it doesn't look so hot. But at the same time, like, let's say you have a power hitting left handed pull hitter. I don't know, give give me somebody that in the in the major I guess like Chris Davis. I don't know yeah. if they shift on Chris Davis. Oh yeah, they've been shifting on Chris
0: um, Davis for his whole career. He's a day okay, he's a so, day one shift guy.
1: So you th- Chris Davis tries to hit a lot of balls in the air, sends the ball out of the yard, but if he's gonna hit a ball on the ground it's because he rolled it over. So if you put you slide over your shortstop and you slide over the second baseman and you put three infielders on the right side, usually they have the second baseman playing deep in the grass you know, maybe 15 feet into the outfield, and you move the third baseman over to the shortstop. So Chris Davis has two options, right? He can either hit normally and try to lift the ball, and if he hits the ball on the ground to the right side, he's out. Or he can try to alter his approach and shoot balls the other way. And if you get Chris Davis trying to hit balls on the ground the other way or shoot balls the other way, you've you've achieved, you know, I mean, if I was pitching against Chris Davis, I'd rather have him trying to hit balls, you know, shoot balls the other way than, than hit a 700 foot home run off of me. So, um, and a lot of guys have started to try to bunt on the shift to try to get a base hit. If somebody's trying to bunt one, you know, at third base, instead of trying to hit a ball hard, um, then, then, you know, I'm, I'm, you're taking them out of their game. So, You know, I'm personally a fan because you play the odds, but when it doesn't work, it's frustrating. It's tough. Just from a success standpoint, you know?
0: Right, it's tough. That same article that I referenced a minute ago about how the Phillies have the worst shifting defense in the league, it also um, showed some side-by-side videos of the big-time obvious plays where the shift has cost the Phillies runs over the first you know couple of months of the season. And when... Like you said, when you're shifting and somebody hits a ball that's, you know, always an out and it's not an out because the fielder's playing somewhere different, that stands out. You know, you remember that. That looks bad. It looks really bad. But you don't remember the times when somebody, you know, smokes a ground ball that would have gone in between the first and the second baseman for a hit, but you have the shift on so it's a two hopper to your second baseman who's actually playing in shallow right field. You don't remember that one as easily, right? Right. So the sh- right exactly. So the sh- you do the shift because statistically you're going to have more times where it gets you outs than when it costs you outs. But you know when it costs you know when it costs you outs and costs you runs, it really it looks bad and it stands out in your mind. So I think that's all it really is. Um, and over the long haul, it's going to work. But one other thing before we move on, Rob Manfred, Commissioner of Baseball, he did q and A Q&A with Ken Rosenthal. And they talked a little bit about the shift, and you know Rosenthal asked him if he thought that the shift was contributing to um, the increase in strikeouts because guys are trying to hit fly balls to hit it over the shift and therefore striking out more, putting less balls in play. And what Manfred said was you know, when the shift really became more prominent in the last couple of years and it's really gotten you know, more and more frequent over the last few seasons, He said, baseball thought that hitters would adjust. You know, we'd we'd see more guys try to bunt against it. We'd see more guys change their approach, like you mentioned. But guys aren't doing that. You know, they're, they're taking the old Ted Williams approach. Ted Williams, I think, was the first guy that really ever got shifted on. And he said, you can put as many guys on the right side of the infield as you want to. I'm going to hit it in the right field seats. You know, you can't catch it if I hit it there. And that's what guys try to do. So it's an interesting dilemma baseball's in. But you know, I don't know if it is a dilemma at all, to be honest with you. I actually kind of like the way the game is right now, but it's definitely, um, interesting without a doubt.
1: Yeah. You know, I love what we've talked about this podcast. It's been more of like a baseball philosophy podcast than really, you know, recapping the last week, but I'm enjoying it. Um, and I mean, think about it logically. You've got in the infield, you've got, especially in the major leagues where the defenders are elite, right? You've got third baseman, you've got a shortstop, you've got a second baseman, you've got a first baseman, and you've got really a pitcher who's, who's guarding soft stuff up the middle. Um, so you've got five defenders in a smaller space in the infield compared to in the outfield. You have three defenders to cover a large amount of space. Plus an option to hit the ball over them for a home run. Right. So if you think about it logically, you'd want to hit the ball in the air to be to get it away from those five defenders plus a catcher um, and have and have a better chance of of landing it uh, because in the, in the major leagues and even where I am and in AAA, if you hit the ball on the ground, you know unless you scorch it or, or get lucky, it's going to be an out. I mean, I can't tell you how many hard ground balls are outs, um, but you hit a ball hard in the air, it's got a chance. So, you know, I wouldn't say guys are hitting it in the air because of a shift. Um, I think guys are hitters right now are just trying to hit it in the air in general. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think the shifts on the ground are a result of when hitters mishit it and put the ball on the ground, they consistently do it in – one area right. of the infield.
0: Right, and w- I mean, think about it from the reverse perspective when you're evaluating pitchers one of the key points that you look for is what's their ground ball rate, right? You want a guy that has a high ground ball rate because at the elite level of baseball, like you said, all of those infielders you know, relative to their peers are very good defenders, you know most third baseman and second baseman in the major leagues are shortstops that got moved over, you know, they're all they're all at some point have been the best defensive player on their team. So ground balls, I don't have the stats in front of me, but our ground balls are converted to outs at a ridiculously high percentage of the time. So if you, as a hitter can hit fewer ground balls, most of the time you're going to be a better hitter overall. And I think that's what you're seeing. So, um, I mean, I've got so many other thoughts that we could we could put on this, but we got to move on. We've got to we move, move, move on. on. It's way too late. Save it. It's way it's way too late. Maybe in the off season, we'll have a deep dive baseball philosophy podcast where we can really uh, flesh out some of these ideas. But but before we get out of here, we've got to talk some NBA. So where we sit right now, uh, the Warriors are up two zero on the Cavs, um, which I think we both thought that they would be, but the way we got to Warriors up two zero is a little bit different than at least the way I thought it was going to. You know, game two kind of went how we thought it would. The Warriors kind of ran him out of the building. But, I mean, the story here is game one. LeBron James, 51 points. I believe he had eight rebounds, nine assists, something ridiculous. The Cavs have a chance to win it there at the end, and they just gave it away. I mean, George Hill misses a free throw, and then the play that we'll all remember for the rest of our lives, J.R. Smith forgets the score. I mean – is there a gaffe in professional sports in our lifetime that is gonna that is any bigger than this one? This is the biggest one I can think of. I mean, it's unbelievable. We're gonna be thinking about this for the next twenty years.
1: I'm gonna admit something on here that I don't know if I've admitted yet. I when he grabbed the ball and started running towards the three point line. I mean, granted, like yes, I was watching the game. Yes, I was paying attention. I was not on you know on the block trying to get the rebound like he was i was on my phone as well but he he got the ball and started running to three point line and i was like oh the cabs i mean the warriors got a foul him. the warriors got a foul him. because i because the way he was acting he made me believe that they were ahead uh, if that makes any sense <laughs> he, um, sold I was he, like, he sold he it he definitely sold it because i was like oh man what's i realized i was like oh no that is such a big mistake um I've heard a couple people say, well, George Hill should have just made the free throw. Yes, that's true. Did you see the longer video of that stayed on the Cavs bench the whole time of LeBron asking Ty Lu if we had, they had a timeout? And he said yes, and he just put a towel over his face and, and looked extremely defeated. Did you see that video?
0: So I, I saw the video. I haven't watched the video because... I that's just that's going to be a tough watch for me. You know, I stuff like that when you see guys in that much pain, you know, I know it's just a game, but to me, the end of game 1 is the end of LeBron James in Cleveland for the Cavs. You know, I think it's over because there's no way now they come back and win this series and now nobody can blame him for leaving, you know, and I think that what that video shows is probably LeBron, you know, I'm not saying in his conscious mind he's thinking this, but deep down he probably knows that it's over for him in Cleveland. And I just couldn't bring myself to watch it. I'll probably watch it at some point, but I have not watched it yet.
1: Yeah, I think deep down he, I think he saw that that, that was the series. Um, you know, if they take one of two there in Golden State, then you come back to Cleveland, you essentially have home court advantage now. It looks a lot better than coming back. I mean – they, there's there's no question the Warriors look better than the Cavs. Like, if you do a schoolyard draft, you take LeBron one, and then you may take seven other Warriors players next, um, besides Kevin Love. But that was a game that they were there to steal. They could have stolen that game. LeBron knew it was so close. He had worked so hard, and it was so close. And when he realized... They had no chance in, in overtime after that, that's for sure. No, it was over. Um, as soon
0: as overtime started, the the Warriors had a better chance of covering the 12-point spread than the Cavs did have winning in the game in overtime. I mean, after they didn't yeah. win regulation, it was over.
1: It was absolutely over. And But yeah, I mean, that video was a tough watch just because you see... I mean, LeBron just looks physically and emotionally... Gosh, I mean just defeated i don't think defeated is a strong enough word almost like oh my gosh i cannot believe that just happened like he was in shock
0: Um, brian windhorse the espn you know he's basically the espn's lebron reporter he's been following lebron his entire career and he went on low post zach lowe's podcast after game one and he said that the Cavs locker room after game one was the most devastated he had ever seen a locker room and he's been in in, you know, finals locker rooms with LeBron James teams after, I believe, four finals losses. Um, and he said this one was worse, you know, because you could you knew that in order for the Cavs to win this series, they had to steal one of the first two games on the road. And they got a 50-point performance from LeBron. And I don't think fifty saying it was a 50-point performance does it justice. I mean, the level he played at in game one is one of the... high. I think it might be the best game of basketball I've ever watched anybody play. I mean, he was on a different plane of existence than everyone else on the floor. The efficiency he was playing at, the jump shooting. I mean, LeBron's only knock on his career has been he's not a great jump shooter. And he was knocking down Steph Curry threes in that game. You know, he was walking into 30-footers and knocking them down. The passes he's seeing are unbelievable. And for them to squander that LeBron performance when they had to steal one in Oracle... I mean it was it, it was over and you know they know it's over we know it's over everybody knows it's over now it's just a matter of whether or not they finish off the sweep or if the Cavs steal one in Cleveland but it's tough i mean it's tough i I really do i was I'm not a Cavs fan but I was I was rooting for LeBron to stay there just because you know it would have been a nice story to see him in his career in the place where he grew up but I don't I think that's over too i think he's gone it's a matter of where he goes now
1: Yeah I think I don't know if it was on Bill Simmons' podcast or somewhere else. I was like, man, this is really true, that last year it seemed like LeBron and KD were almost sort of even um, in their playing. You're like, man, these these guys are they're pretty – they're on the same level. And LeBron James looks way better than Kevin Durant right now. And Kevin Durant's scoring like 29 points a game. It's no slight against KD at all. It's more of just how well LeBron is playing um, – so, you know, I'll just close up my NBA analysis with LeBron's best, and the Warriors got it. I mean, I, LeBron's awesome, but just doesn't have enough firepower to help him. Warriors win, and I'm going to say five. I bet, I bet Cleveland wins game three. Warriors win game
0: four and five. Yeah, I think you're right. But before we get out of here, we would be remiss if we talked about this game and did not at least touch on the block charge call. Um, at the end of regulation. I heard uh, somebody say, and I can't remember who it was, but somebody said that the NBA as an entity was the happiest, quote-unquote, person in the world when J.R. Smith forgot what the score was because it it gave everybody something else to focus on other than the block charge call. So, I mean, everybody knows what I'm talking about. When Kevin Durant's barreling down the lane, LeBron steps in front of him, takes a charge, they go back and review it, and change it from a charge to a block and KD gets two free throws. I didn't even know they could do that. I didn't know that was a rule. And uh, apparently if they're – I knew you could review whether or not they were inside the circle, which he clearly wasn't inside the circle, but then you can go back and change the block charge call. I didn't know you could do that. Did you know that?
1: No, I I didn't know that, and I didn't know that you could even go back and review if it was inside the circle. But if you think about the way the charge is – done in nba games and officiated the amount of times people are standing dead still with their hands up in the air and get barreled over is maybe one percent i mean usually it's a play just like that and lebron's feet were as set as any charge call has ever been i'm not an nba referee um it just did not look like it looked like a foul okay you called it um like let's move on for them to go back and change it was weird
0: that's my thing i mean block charge calls are 50 50 at best you know i don't know the letter of the block charge rule because i don't know if anybody knows it you know we always say you know if they're moving if the defensive player's moving then it's a block but apparently that's not the rule um and i don't know what the rule is and i think that that one's close enough where you can't you can't change the call on the floor i mean I don't know. I thought it was, I thought it was weird to say the least. Um, but there was about four plays that happened after that, that the Cavs still had a chance to win. And I mean, we've said it, you know, they squandered their one chance to win the series and um, we're going to have a NBA offseason pod at some point after the finals and before free agency starts where we really break down all of the off season storylines for basketball that are coming up because it's going to be a fun off I mean, there's going to be a lot of movement and it, it begins and ends with LeBron James. I mean, it's going to be, um, it's going to be another crazy NBA offseason.
1: It will. I'm looking forward to it, but I'm also looking forward to, to game three tomorrow. Hopefully the Cavs can pull it out. I, I hope that they get, go six. I don't think it does, but we'll see.
0: Just give us something interesting to watch here in the next couple of weeks other than baseball. Yes. I mean, I love baseball. I'm fine with watching baseball, but this is the last basketball we're going to get to watch. Please make it entertaining.
1: Well, you know what, we're right now we're, gosh, over 50 minutes on this pod. We, we said before that we wanted to make it like 35 or 40 at the longest, but I'm not even mad because I, <laughs> I felt like we talked about a lot of good stuff. There's nothing I'd really, you know, go back and cut out. So, um, you know, I, 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 do you have anything else uh, before we sign off here? No,
0: man, that's it. I really enjoyed talking with you. appreciate you filling in for Aaron Lewis, you know. Yeah. Um, Excited to have you on more regularly moving forward hopefully um, but other than that that's it man get us out of here
1: yeah well yeah I, I was glad to glad to be here and um, I'm looking forward to hearing you and you and Lewis talk next week about you know try to cover some of this stuff here, as thoughts and um, then whatever aspires and you know the next four or five days in baseball is you see something new at the park every single day it's what, so. it's what
0: makes it the best game in the world
1: Absolutely. So um, thank you again for for listening to this podcast and for continuing to listen to us here at Informal. Um, If you haven't already, uh, please go, um, you know, leave us a review on iTunes and um, even if it's a bad review. Actually, if it's a bad review, don't leave us a review. Keep your bad reviews to yourself exactly you write them down in a journal or something we don't need that yeah. out there for yeah. everybody to see you can send it to us on a um, postcard we'll take those exactly um you can always hit us at informal us on twitter or send us an email at informal at gmail.com sam is at lewis underscore zero six on twitter i'm at austin
0: coley uh Anything else? That's it, man. Thanks. See you guys next week. Yeah. Go Buckos.
1: Peace.